Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis and we're on chapter 6. Chapter 6. Such Things as Water Spouts. Months ago, when the cruise of the Yawl Hippocampus was no more than an unrelated idea, I resolved to prepare myself for foreign lands by the assimilation of Spanish. With characteristic application, I devoted a day or two to the mastery of such words as agua leche and the Spanish equivalents of other vital necessities like realizing that to get along in Latin America, one need know only the words frias cervezas and dos mas. Being so ignorant of the Arcadian simplicity of life in Cuba, I struggled manfully with the language en route thereto, never succeeding, however, in surmounting the bristly barrier comprised by habla verde espanol. Try as I would, I couldn't pronounce the V and D, verde, nor after several weeks in Cuban waters have I heard anyone else pronounce it. One hears Uste frequently, which I thought at first was a surname as commonplace as Smith, but never the angular contraction. So I am forced to believe that the abbreviation is designed solely to discourage foreigners from learning the language. Reacting to this discouragement, I declined absolutely to learn Cuban customs, and am now in a position to inform other yachtsmen that by assuming an unsophisticated mien, they may enter and leave the little republic without paying a single bribe. Health bills for a yacht as small as the hippocampus are as free as air, and these obtainable from the local port officer are the only requisite clearance papers. On our way to pick up the documents, we weighed anchor in Havana Harbour, waved goodbye to two American motorboats whose owners had cruised over from Florida for a holiday, and stood out toward Morrow Castle. For two reasons, we were interested in these Americans. First, because they had the hardihood to cross the Gulf Stream in motorboats of less than 25-foot length, and second, because of their evident unfamiliarity with long-distance cruising. They seemed typical of a class of American motorboat men who will go anywhere and get back, knowing little and caring less for charts and other government publications. Their ignorance, if such it was, was revealed by their telling us enthusiastically of a fine map of West Indian waters that could be obtained free of charge at the American consulate. Oh, it shows all the islands they confided, and the principal harbours, and little arrows tell which way the wind blows and how the currents flow for the month of July. You'll make a mistake if you try to navigate down there without one. Among our many mistakes, this one was not included. We had long since provided ourselves with the chart they spoke of, the July pilot chart for Central American waters, and when a month previously we had decided to omit the Bahamas from our itinerary, we had let our new plans be determined by the current information of this chart. From it, we learned that a current running counter to the Gulf Stream would assist us along the northern coast of Cuba to Cape San Antonio, and that another countercurrent flowing westward along the south shore would speed us nearly to Jamaica. But in the days following our clearance from Havana, we found that it is one thing for a government to print current arrows on a chart, and quite another to expect the currents to conform to the direction of those arrows. Hence, in the flat calm of the first night out, we drifted ten miles back along our course, and hence in the ensuing doldrums south of the Isle of Pines, we were never able to assume a dead reckoning position that bore any close relation to our actual position. 
We've since been told that the minor currents of the Caribbean shift like the sands of the desert, and that only the main streams are constant in their direction and intensity. And these, worst luck, are all against the southward-bound traveller, whether he go eastward or westward of Cuba. The first afternoon along the Cuban shore was a tonic that pulled us up from the subnormal induced by our many days of beating down the Floridian coast. We skirted close to the beach, hunting that elusive countercurrent, and the soft wind blew from the land, sweet with the fragrance of tropical vegetation. From midday on, the mainsail shaded us from the rays of the westering sun, and we all, helmsmen included, dozed on deck or watched with supreme contentment the unfolding panorama of the shore. The busy log revolved unheeded, for we were informed of our position by the tall grey chimneys of the centrales, where the Cuban sugarcane is refined for the market, and by the mountain ranges that soon appeared through the haze to westward. Even the calm of that night was enjoyable, although each minute reduced our easting and helped restrict our 24-hour total to only 40 miles made good. In the morning, when the breeze followed the sun over the eastern horizon, we headed in high spirits towards the harbour of Bahia Honda, there to stop for a few hours and see Cuba as it really is, divested of the cosmopolitanism of Havana. Guided by information contained in the sailing directions and by the colour of the water, we stood in past a point dominated by a romantic, disused castle, and sailed down a line of boys arranged uniformly with the United States system. Before us on each side, as we drew close to the head of the bay, arose clusters of peaks which might have been thrown there by the hand of an unpractised creator, so jagged and precipitous and irregular did they appear. But in the foreground, the foothills were orderly enough, and I was quick to compare certain features of them with the Connecticut Berkshires. Yes, drawled Squibb, taking in the landscape through his captured German field glasses, you'd say you were in Connecticut if it weren't for the royal palms silhouetted above their summits, or for the thatched-roofed cottage in the middle of that cane field. I withdrew my comparison, and pulled vindictively at the fish line which Squibb had trailed over our counter a few minutes previously. To my surprise, it resisted my pull. In great excitement, I handed the line to Squibb, and with great precision he hauled it in, watching the glint of sunlight on silver scales. No science there. With a meal at stake, the hooked fish came in like nothing more or less than five pounds of dinner, and in ten seconds he was flapping in the cockpit. There he stayed, while under reduced sail we sounded our way beyond the innermost buoy. Then... When we had come to anchor in less than two fathoms off a building euphemistically termed a warehouse by the hydrographic office literati, the first business of the noon hour was to clean the fish and fry him in cracker crumbs. Joe Chambers once had an experience with lobster which destroyed for him the palatability of all seafoods, but he actually likes to skin, clean and cook fish. I like to watch him, and it is my chief regret of this cruise that I haven't done so oftener. We have trolled over likely-looking reefs, fished when becalmed, and attempted to scoop up minnows in the canvas deck bucket, but luck doesn't favour our enterprise. Once, a fish bit Joe Squibb's big toe, or so he says, when he was dangling his feet over the side, and often when becalmed, we've seen zebrafish, to give them a descriptive name, playing in the shadow of our hull. Once also, a shark fished for me, as may be mentioned presently, but only at Bahia Honda, 
have we come to culinary conclusions with the aquatic tribe. Lunch over, we put on a few clothes, landed in the dink, and walked a country road between rows of mango trees for a matter of a mile to the village of Bahia Honda. It is not metropolitan, nor fashionable, nor wildly exciting, but it satisfied our desire for a glimpse of rural Cuban life. From within a wooden barracks over which floated the lone star of the Republic sounded the click of typewriter keys, and from a house fronting the grass-grown central square came the tortured lament of a tuneless piano. These were the only village noises, as even the dogs were taking their afternoon siesta. Turkey buzzards wheeled over the weather-beaten square tower of the village church, or sat awkwardly on its balcony, and a military horse, tethered in the shade of a picket house, poured the ground absent-mindedly. Other activity was notably lacking, except in the local department store, where a family of Chinamen sold everything from wine to straw hats, and where the two Joes drank their frias cervezas. Disliking beer, I had my refreshment from a keg of vino blanco, and hoped devoutly as I drank from a dirty glass that germs were as dormant as the rest of Bahia Laden with sugar and a few other necessities forgotten at Havana, we returned to the ship and were shortly underway. With gasoline at 65 cents a gallon, we were sparing of the use of power and lavish of our time, and we were two hours beating the four miles to the mouth of the harbour. Yet, it is ever a delight to sail Hippocampus in still water, and we did not begrudge the time. Darkness overtook us as we neared the entrance, the darkness of a horde of mosquitoes swarming out from the nearby mangroves, and when, by the use of citronella, we had cleared the atmosphere, the flashing light of Gobernadora Point reminded us that we had ended another day. On the one following, we were becalmed off an island known as Duteous Cay, from whose lighthouse I was able to check the accuracy of a sight taken for longitude. Nothing worthy of comment happened until early in the evening, when the easterly wind, having again risen, picked up a rolling sea with it, and our towed dinghy overtook us and unfortunately stove a small hole in her bow. Then, as we should have done before, we hauled the dink aboard and lashed it athwartships across the cockpit, and not since have we towed it in a following sea. Another day saw us still to eastward of Cape San Antonio, but early the next morning we rounded it and entered on a new phase of cruising life. From Bahia Honda to the western end of Cuba, we had skirted a coast which, although bounded by a barrier reef of coral extending several miles from the shore, is at least partially lighted. Up to Duteous Cay, we had kept fairly well inshore, drawn by the wild beauty of the high mountains of the Sierra Acostas. We had sighted an occasional passing ship or glimpsed native fishing craft threading the shoal waters behind the barrier reef, and so we had felt somewhat in touch both with nature and with humanity. But now, for a hundred miles to the Isle of Pines, we were to be isolated from ship and shore, and again from there to Cienfuegos, equally destitute of companionship. Moreover, the wind which had been for us was now against us, and the squalls that had dissipated themselves in the mountains were now to dash upon us. As we rounded Antonio and headed up into rollers which had come all the way from Haiti to greet us, we realised that we could say goodbye to idyllic cruising. Yet, as we were to learn later, we were particularly favoured by fortune in making the Isle of Pines within two days of rounding the Cape. All told, we were becalmed only ten and a half hours, and in the 48 
met only two arched squalls and one bayamo. An arched squall, which appears to be native to Caribbean waters, is recognisable by a heavy black line of low cumulus clouds, which, coming up or down the wind, brings a puff of great intensity or a tropical shower of rain, or both. It usually sucks all the wind out of the sky and is followed by an intermediate period of absolute calm. A bayamo, more or less indigenous to the south shore of Cuba, is more terrific in appearance and, in our experience, more freighted with trouble. It may strike at any hour of the day, but appears to favour the twilight period when the crew of what Al calls a corker little yawl would like to be settling down for the night. Before describing it, let me explain that in the Caribbean Sea, we have seen more varieties of clouds and more combinations than the imagination can encompass. I used to cite the region of the Azores as the unrivaled cloud factory of the Western Ocean, but I shall hereafter refer budding meteorologists to the south shore of Cuba. One sees here pitch black masses that along the main coast would turn a hardened salt grey with fear, and yet off Cuba one thinks nothing of them. The sunsets are often a nasty, wind-torn green that in the vicinity of New York would send crack Atlantic liners looking for shelter up the Shrewsbury River. And the night is calm and starlit. The sun rises behind a bank of cumulus covering the whole eastern horizon and gleams wickedly through a small aperture in its exact centre or doesn't show at all until it has attained an altitude of 45 degrees. The remainder of the day may be calm and cloudless. At times, cirrus whips out in long streamers overhead, mackerel clouds stretch through an arc of 180 degrees, and all the forms of cumulus clutter up the heavens. Rain falls at a half a dozen places from vicious-looking nimbus, and rainbows appear when there is no rain in sight. All these manifestations of a cloud-mad region we bear with equanimity but when we see a monumental mass of opacity collect all the little clouds to itself and bear down on us, we say, Bayamo, and stand by for a ram. Joe Squibb puts the boom in the crutch. Joe Chambers prepares to ease the battens between the lazy jacks, and I take my place at the halyards, and generally, before the wind hits us, we are snugged down with only jib and jigger spread. The wind comes in a 50-mile gust. The sea rises as if by magic, and is as miraculously beaten down by the deluge of rain which, mingled with spray, strikes us horizontally. For an hour or less we make the course that the wind will let us, and then, for a watch or more, we slat about in an unmitigated calm. That's the average Bayamo, but occasionally one packs a wallop which is not quite so pleasant. Yet on the run to the Isle of Pines we were acquainted with these freaks of nature by a squall that was virtually windless. Rain fell and wet us and the sun came out and dried us and we did not bother to lower the mainsail, although what little wind there was was whipped right around the compass and reminded us unpleasantly of hurricanes. This was our happiest experience with the tribe, except in the instances when the Bayamos missed us altogether. Luck was with us in our landfall on the Isle of Pines. At noon I had taken a site for latitude which I distrusted and in the afternoon I worked a St. Hilier site for a longitude which met with a little better favour. But from a 10pm dead reckoning position, we laid a course which, 40 miles extended, should have brought us up to Point Francis on the western end of the Isle of Pines. 
Standing the first watch that evening, I recalled that the captain of SC-190, with whom we hobnobbed at Key West, had told me that the Isle of Pines is 17 miles away from the position indicated on the chart. Whether it is 17 miles east or west, I couldn't remember, but when Chalmers relieved me, I relayed the imperfect information to him and advised that he be particularly watchful toward the end of his trick. He was, and moreover, his seagoing intuition stood by him, for at exactly 3.20 he had a feeling that land was near and took a sounding. 15 feet of water, and 10 minutes previously we had been sailing in 1,500 fathoms. With all hands on deck we hurriedly put away, and then anchored in four fathoms to await the lighter morning. When it came, it revealed, bearing on our course the 60-foot skeleton tower by which the skipper of the 190 had told us to recognise Point Francis. So our luck was better than my navigation, which, under the circumstances, was endurable. It was my intention, during our two-day stop in Siguania Bay, a large bight formed particularly by the encircling arm of Point Francis, to take several sites for determining the longitude of the point, but neither then nor in the following days in which we lay becalmed south of the isle could I get a decent sun from which to make my sights. So I can only advise others to be careful when navigating in the vicinity of the Isle of Pines. The southern side of the isle has little to attract yachtsmen, and we put in only to take the ground and scrub our sides with sand to cleanse them of the oil accumulated at Havana. A town, shown as Los Indios on maps of Cuba, and identifiable from the chart by the Appalachian Indian River, is inhabited by a customs inspector, two friends, and a small boy. Food cannot be bought. Water is only obtainable by rowing three miles up the river, and gasoline an unknown quantity. But we accomplished our purpose, slept in for two nights, and came away enriched by a basket full of limes and mangoes, which were given Paul by an American living at the head of navigation on the Indian River. With our bill of health, vised by the obliging and underworked customs inspectors of Los Indios, and with a present of 30 gallons of muddy water, we set sail on July 8th for Kingston, Jamaica. Thanks to calms and an occasional headwind, we were still able on the mornings of July 9th, 10th and 11th to see the high peaks of the Isle of Pines. Three days of watch standing, of taking what the frequent squalls had to give us, of rolling about for hours with mainsail furled and jib and jigger flapping, had netted us but 50 miles of easting. The log for these days is a monotonous record with the words mended rip in mainsail three times recurring. We were getting fed up with the biomas, and it is not surprising that on the morning of July 12th, we decided to alter our itinerary and make our next stop Cienfuegos, which lies in the Gulf of Cazones, Cuba, more than 400 miles short of Kingston. Besides, we sounded our water tanks and took stock of our larder and realized that we must make harbor within three days or subsist on reduced rations. Looking back on it, the 12th of July was one of unusual interest and it seems a fitting day on which to conclude this chapter. In the morning, we were becalmed from 7 until noon and during this period we had ample opportunity to mend a bad tear in the jib resulting from the previous evening's biamo. We were favourably situated too to observe the formation of the largest bank of clouds that had yet worried us with its potential cussedness. But this monstrosity passed to northward in mid-afternoon without giving us much trouble. 
In the morning, before taking my daily swim, a thing I had many times resolved not to do south of the latitude Miami, I looked over the side and saw, swimming far below us, a meditative shark. He was on the port tack, heading west, and I said to myself, shucks, he can't make the grade to the surface while I'm diving in and out. So I took a shallow dive off the stern and in five seconds had hauled myself out on the bumpkin and was eyeing the depths beneath me. The shark was there and he had come up from the depths, given another second and he could have sampled man flesh. I called to Paul who came on deck with his Luger automatic and a wad of paper with which to attract the shark to the surface. The shark rose, his dorsal cleaving the air and Paul fired. It was a miss and the shark turned nonchalantly on his tail and swam beneath the boat. Other attractions were cast over the side, cracker crumbs and an empty can which floated astern of us. The shark rose to the latter bait and as it was my turn to fire I let him have Paul's ex-German medicine. I am probably the poorest pistol shot in Seven Kingdoms but I fired haphazard and hit the shark. He jumped part way out of the water and then dived down, down in the clear sea until he seemed no larger than a six inch fish that had been swimming with him. He himself was a six footer, not large as sharks go, but fully capable of inflicting damage to an arm or a leg. We thought at first that I had killed him and we have always thought that sharks are cowards, but this one disproved both beliefs by returning 15 minutes later to take up a vigilant sentry go beneath our craft. There he stayed until the wind, rising, filled our sails and we bore our way to eastward. In the late afternoon of that day, when calm again overtook us, we were 20 miles south of Rosario Key, and still a matter of 100 miles from Cienfuegos. We were plentifully supplied with gasoline and were commencing to entertain the idea of burning 30 or 40 dollars worth of the precious fluid to make port. To that end, I had intended going over the motor a little, cleaning carbon from the cylinders and wiping a timer which I had reason to believe was too copiously lubricated. But with the procrastination that obsesses one when there is little to do, and all the time in the world in which to do it, I had written letters instead. At about six o'clock, lying below, I heard one of the boys say, Bayamo. The word sounds like a Spanish curse, and we mean it for that, when, the cloud banks forming, we see a squall approaching. There was desolutory conversation about the Bayamo, which, as both boys agreed, was the most ominous which had yet been sighted. Then I heard Joe Chalmers say, See how the falling rain is twisting into a spiral and how the sea seems to be rising up to meet it. That sentence was the most electrifying that had ever shocked my ears or galvanized my limbs into action. It didn't need Joe's subsequent exclamation of, My God, it's a water spout, to send me to the topside to get our bearing from it. Nor did I stay long on deck to watch the sinuous, twisting spiral of this phenomenon bear down upon us. In approximately 14 and an eighth seconds following the formation of the spout, the companionway ladder had been cast aside, the tank valves turned on, the cylinders primed and the motor started. We wanted to get away from there. Joe Squibb took the tiller and headed south while Al and I dashed individually to the mizzen and jib, the mainsail already being doused, and made the record furls of the voyage. Then, with deck hatches closed and hippocampus on her most seaworthy footing, we had time to watch the trumpet and speculate on the result of it, should it overtake us. All hands agreed that we would be a total casualty, and we have since heard of a Jamaican fishing schooner which was lost with all hands when a spout sent tons of water crashing through its deck. The moments 
were unpleasant, and they were made more tense by the motor, which presently began missing in one cylinder. I went below to correct the mixture and switch the current from one set of batteries to the other, but I saw by the indisputable evidence of sparks issuing from open petcocks that the motor was caked with carbon. She had not been cleaned in five or six hundred miles of operation, and she was taking this time to show us my neglect. Yet, although she missed now in both cylinders, she plugged along. Presently, I learned from the boys on deck that we were altering the bearing of the spout. This was now a mile or so to the eastward of us, moving slowly to the northwest and carrying with it the only air that was stirring. Directly to northward of it was a dense black cloud which sent shaft after shaft of forked lightning into the sea. To southward of the spout and of us was the characteristically overbearing cloud form of a Bayamo into which we were heading as a lesser of two evils. Darkness was overtaking us with tropical swiftness, but we hoped with fervent intensity that the twilight would hold until the spout had broken or passed beyond us. Five minutes passed, and it grew appreciably nearer. Another five, and we again widened our bearing. Then, as the night set in, it seemed to merge with the thunderstorm and lose its peculiarly sinister form. Whether it fell, melted, or vanished into thin air, we have no way of knowing, but I am pleased to be able to record that we were not on hand at the moment of its dissolution. After the tenseness of this escape, the Bayamo seemed like an old friend. Indeed, when we came within its zone of action, we found that it was made up of bluster with but little rain and wind. But we looked to northward, saw the thundercloud sending its bolts of lightning into the sea, remaining almost stationary over the spot where we had been, and perhaps hiding within it a still active water spout, and we thanked whatever gods there may be that we have a motor in our craft. In the last few months I have grown cumulatively fond of the sport of sailing, but I realise, if never before, that a marine motor is a charter member of the Volunteer Life-Saving Corps of America. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate's level, and there, for $20 a month, you get access to the one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today, so I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.